listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, it's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. For more information or to get in touch, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Motorsport Radio. Hello and welcome to the British GT Fan Show on Motorsport Radio for all the latest on the 2020 Intelligent Money British GT Championship and more. Coming up on today's show, we've got all the latest news... Our own retrospective race report of the 2019 Spa-Francorchamps British GT race. Find out the answer to last episode's teaser. And an in-depth interview with Martin Plowman. The British GT Fan Show is hosted by Sarah Smith, alongside resident GT geek Nicholas Smith and Andrew Brightman and Gaz Jacobs of the British GT Fans. First item in today's news segment is that the Spa-Francorchamps Championship is in jeopardy as the Belgian Prime Minister has announced that they are extending their current lockdown measures. Um, They've also announced in addition to this that there's going to be no large spectator gatherings, uh, for example summer festivals, until at least the 31st of August, which of course covers the dates that we were scheduled to be there and will cover all sport. So was this something that we expected to happen and what do we think is going to be the fallout from this? Definitely a bit of a shock when they announced to the end of August um, because it's the first country to come out and say that. Um, Yeah, (laughs) definitely makes it that's three or four very big events for Spa they're going to miss because they also include the Grand Prix which is going to be held at the end of August. Also makes more interest in trying to fit in for WEC, ready for Le Mans, and also our round there's another round we, we've lost or going to be rescheduled, definitely or maybe rescheduled for a later point. I think if the 24 hours goes ahead, then we'll go ahead uh, because if they'll, they'll run a speed week later in the year or they'll ditch a support race in favour of a British GT. Why would you sell space to other, other organisers if you've got your own championship that needs to race there? Um, so I say I think if the 24 hours goes ahead, we're safe. Um, but of course, SRO haven't really responded uh, apart from to say we've taken note of it and of course it affects us. Um, so we don't know what the plan is with regards to the 24 hours. So we can't really talk about British GT. I think um, the SRO have actually said that they're actually working on a contingent date. Yeah, they have. As, as to whether or not that, where, when that is, I don't I haven't, I haven't read it myself. It's, uh, it's, it's not good news, I'm afraid, in my opinion. The statement that they put out um, says what's more, a new date is being finalised with the circuit and will be announced as soon as possible. The same level of dedication will now be focused on creating a world-class spectacle in autumn 2020. What I will say is it pretty much guarantees an exciting race if we do go there because the weather's volatile enough in in June, July time, uh, let alone um, if we're racing in, in autumn and into winter. And Spa is known to have quite a microclimate which turns up interesting racing as it is. Yeah, it always rains at Spa. That's what they're saying. Too. Well, if it isn't raining now, it will be soon. <laughs> or raining one and then rain, not and be perfectly dry the other. Yeah. 
So next up, we've got some news about TC's motorsport, which was brought to the team's attention by Gaz. Gaz, do you want to elaborate on what you've discovered? Yeah, um, TC's have announced that they're going to go to the GE World Challenge Sprint Cup uh, in Europe. Two of their cars, well, they're both of their cars, and um, one of which will be done, which will be driven by Isa Al Khalifa with Ben Barnico. And as far as I am aware, this the second car lineup still hasn't been announced, but that'll be uh, that may be an interesting one to look out for in the Sprint Cup. When they first announced British GT, I said two car entry, two McLarens. That's brave. Obviously, they intend to make a splash in motorsport. I mean, the company's less than a year old, and they're now looking at... I don't know whether they're planning on running the same cars in GT World Challenge Europe, or whether they've got two more cars that they're going to run in GT World Challenge. But they've taken on a big challenge for British GT and then said, you know what, in for a penny, in for a pound. What is it, what it is going to do is, when we get to track action, they are going to move forward very quickly because they'll be getting a lot more data from running four cars than they will from running two. And they'll be getting to grips with the cars a lot quicker. And it'll also help Issa Al-Khalifa, because uh, obviously more experience on European circuits. So obviously with the pandemic, having the world in full lockdown, there's not a lot to report in the real world. However, uh, people are stepping up to the challenge in the virtual world. And there are things popping up all over the place, whether it's people streaming on Twitch, things being organised and the SRO organised an eSports charity challenge which took place on the 29th of March. Nick, do you want to let us know a bit more about that? Yeah, it was um, it was quite a good event really. I, I watched it sort of as live, uh, a full day replay on, on YouTube. Very well produced, very well presented aside from the slight glitches with the CGI um, so that arms disappeared as, as people gesticulated on the screen. Um, in terms of the racing, it was really good, actually. The overall victory went to Arthur Camera. He's a um, one of the professional sim racers. So they had a number of SRO drivers. They had a number of, of sim racers. And then in the end, they had 10 people that, that went through a hot lap challenge to, to get into the event. All run, as we said last time, on Assetto Corsa Competizione. It looked very good. It was well well presented. The commentary was was pretty good as well. The best of the real world drivers was was Dennis Lynn, so one of ours in a Lamborghini. He finished ahead of Simon Gachet and Ezekiel Perry Compank. It was a Mercedes love fest, really. The balance performance really suited Mercedes. Um, Ferrari also did quite well in the qualifying races, but come to the end of the day, it was if, if you didn't have a three-pointed star on your nose, then join the back of the queue. Um, but for a, a first attempt, it was it was very well done, and I'm, I'm hoping they do some more. The other thing that's been going on at the moment is the the race, which is a, a motorsport news website. They've set up an all stars and a legends race thing that's been going on. Uh, raced yesterday at Lime Rock Park using Norma LMP3 cars for the all stars and McLarens, old, old McLarens for for the legends. Worth pointing out here because there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight British GT alumni in the field. Again, the class of which was Dennis Lind. But we also had Johnny Adam, Michael Benyeha, of course, is one of the Tolman McLaren drivers this year. Uh, Darren Turner, who 
obviously raced uh, last year or the year before with Beach Dean. Uh, Mike Hetz, who's done GT4 with us before, and Matt Griffin, who occasionally turns up with various different coloured Ferraris. Maxime Martin and Martin Plowman uh, all raced in that. So Dennis Lind was the best of the lot. Martin Plowman did better in this than he did in the um, than he did in the SRO GT charity event. But it's good to see some of our drivers getting involved in in other other events to to keep things going while we're not allowed out on track. And also on the esports front, Andrew's got an update for us on Tora and their season. Yep, they have announced that um, they're going to be team up with British GT to run their esports championship again. Uh, 13 races split across seven rounds could be based on the Xbox version of Forza Motorsport 7 and the PC, so they can be um, simultaneously played at the same time. It's going to be GT3 and GT4 races um, in the races. It's due to start on June the 14th, and they're going to use Road Atlanta for Alton Park, sort of similar circuits. They'll go to Hockenheim, which is supposed to be Donington. Silverstone will be their long endurance race, a 60-minute race. And also a few other races that go to Spa, Brands, and then Nerva Ring will finish off their season on the September 20th. The Toro British GT Championship, I mean, I, I raced in the first ever round of it back when they used Project Cars. Um, didn't do particularly well in it, I will be honest. The other news that we've got regarding this one is the fact there will be a British GT fans car in it this year because um, I'm going to race it again, providing it doesn't clash with real-world racing when that starts happening. But... Tora and SRO have been working together on this. Now it's their sixth season. Um, they turn out a, a good-looking grid, provide some good racing. So, again, something worthwhile keeping your eye on while there's not actual oil being burned. I will say from watching Nick putting some work in on the car that is going to be entered kind of for the show is the amount of work that it goes into kind of creating the liveries and setting the car up. Um, probably without all the manual effort is about as well thought out as cars in the real world. Um, it's been really interesting kind of seeing it develop and kind of which choices and testing various cars. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of see how this develops and how it watches and obviously whether we can do well. Of course, the other major piece of news which hit the motorsport world uh, recently is the passing of Sir Sterling Moss OBE. Uh, one of the absolute legends of our sport, um, started racing in 1948. And people have been saying for years, but it is true, um, that Sir Sterling, uh, the greatest driver never to win the world championship. Um, he did a lot of other stuff as well. Um, he's done, obviously, Formula One, uh, 24 hours of Le Mans, 12 hours of Sebring, 12 hours of Reims. The, and I, always mispronounce this the milli milia which is the um the road rally in italy uh rally monte carlo as well drove for teams like mercedes-benz maserati etc and of course the number 722 in red on the side of a silver mercedes is iconic and that is uh, of course sir sterling moss so sir sterling crawford moss obe born 17th september 1929 uh, passed away unfortunately on the 12th of april of this year he will be uh, a, a very missed figure in the motorsport world you're listening to the british gt fan show you can find us on social media at bgtf show or visit our website bgtfshow.co.uk so andrew and myself are talking to martin plowman 
reigning British GT4 Pro-Am champion, along with Kelvin Fletcher, and newly minted Bentley GT3 driver, again with Kelvin Fletcher for JRM. So, Martin, just um, getting this one started, obviously you've done quite a bit in your career, you did quite a bit of karting, you've done some some indie car as well, and, and then you worked your way in, into sports cars via priced prototypes and then into GT. So, why don't you give us a, a sort of little potted history of, of Martin Plowman in racing? I think um, what you just said there makes me sound pretty old. I mean, I've, I guess I've been around the block quite a bit. I think if I was to summarise my whole career, it would be, you know, opportunities and, and nearly opportunities where, you know, I, I nearly made it at a certain level uh, and then was faced with like a financial brick wall or, you know, opportunity being, you know, torn from my feet and then definite pivots in my career. So like you said there, you know, I went to America, but that came off the back of being on a contract with Toyota F1. So I came out of karting and I was on a 10-year young driver program with Toyota. Uh, and then three years into that, they pulled out of Formula 1 and that left me on the proverbial scrap heap. So with no career, no money, no sponsors, it was a good friend of mine, well, a friend of the family, Dan Weldon, uh, of course, you know, two-time Indy 500 champion. He, uh, you know, he invited me to to go to America, and and he managed to open some doors for me and and got me a test in an Indy Lights team. So I got a, a one-way ticket to America, and, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. So I spent the next five or six years in America. You know, I had two years in Indy Lights, and then in 2011, like the previous year, I finished third in Indy Lights. Um, you know, it was a good year, a couple of wins. Uh, and then in 2011, I was up for a shootout for a ride in the Dale Coyne racing team. Uh, I was going up against uh, like Sebastian Bourdais. Um, and actually, I don't mind bragging about this because it was my first day in the car. And, and Sebastian was freshly back from Formula One, where he got booted out of uh, Toro Rosso. And I was actually three times quicker than him all day. And I, I didn't know until the end of the day when I kept asking my engineer, um, you know, how far off from Sebastian was I and he said no you're not you're quicker so I was like sweet so I thought you know this might be my big breakthrough um and I was and the next day I was told that I had the drive so you know here we go I'm you know I finally made it I'm in IndyCar and then a week before the first round I was driving to um Sebring for the final official test and I got the call from the team boss to say that unfortunately there was a kid from England he was coming over with uh a big budget with a big check, as they say, and uh, that was it. I was out of the drive with uh, a week to spare. So once again, I was on the on the scrap heap. But then that, this is where my career really pivoted. Uh, Patrick Long, who was a, well, he's a, a Porsche factory driver, was another friend of mine. And he said, have you ever considered sports car racing? And I said, what sports car racing? Um, he said, there's a, there's a gentleman driver here who wants to do LMP2. And so Patrick Long, you know, he invited me down to Sebring. Uh, to test in an LMP2 car to be a pro driver against the, uh, you know, in a pro class. And I went down there and did the business. And I was offered a chance to to race in the American Le Mans series. Um, so then, yeah, we, we had a good year. We had a couple of wins. And then at the end of this season, we were fighting for the championship. And a bunch of the European teams came over. You know, Olivia Plar and the factory oak racing team and a few other big names came over. And I, I missed that on pole position by two thousandths of a second in the in the customer racing Oak car against the the factory team. And uh, uh, Jack Nicolay, the owner of Oak Racing, it was impressed, and he offered me a chance to race for the factory team in two thousand thirteen. Um, so into two thousand thirteen we went. Uh, we were the 
second car, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the team. We were the underdogs. Nobody gave us a chance. You know, we, we were up against Olivier Pla, um, Brundle and Hanoi Hansen, who were like there with a the crack team. They were the ones to beat. But we ended up coming away with the championship and, uh, and winning Le Mans. So, uh, so that's, that's pretty much, in a nutshell, how my career's kind of, you know, pivoted and turned over the last few years. But to kind of wrap that up, um, you know, I think I've just been, at times I've been unfortunate, but then I've also just had to go where where the door's been opened and, and just, you know, go with what I've, you know, the opportunity that I've had and, and make the most of that. Going back to, to, to what you were saying about Le Mans, a winning year class at Le Mans is obviously a very special thing. Being involved in a one-two for your team, obviously even better. Leading that one-two for your team home, how, how did that feel? Especially bear in mind you were the spare car, for want of a better way of putting it. It was probably the most... Easily the most stressful race of my career. Um, well, one thing that people don't realise is that um, early in that race, uh, Alan Sim- Simonson uh, cruelly lost his life. And the, the emotions that you go through anyway at the start of a race, you know, this is the biggest race on, on, on the planet. There's hundreds of thousands of people watching and it's raining. It's, it's, it's a drizzly, you know, greasy track. And you are next in the car. And the, and the last time you were in the car was on like Thursday afternoon. So you're getting into a complete unknown. And the last thing you want to do is make a mess of it and crash the car like in the first hour of the race. Throw on top of that, you've just learned the news that one of your colleagues has, has been killed. So all of a sudden you're driving down pit lane and you you just blur of emotion. But you're going down pit lane and you've got a job to do. You know, you can't stop. You can't think about the what is, you know, the, all, the, all the bad things that can happen. You know, in that split second, you're jumping in the car, the pit limit comes off. You've got to forget all that. You've got to push all of that out of your brain. So for me, that was mentally the toughest race I've ever had to do. A high, high and a, and a very low, low all in the same 24-hour period, yeah. So after after the World Endurance Championship and the Vancouver de Mont, um, you, you then arrived in, in British GT. And for the first um, first few years of your time in British GT, you, you were driving underdog cars again. Uh, the Lotus and the Nissan, both fan favourites, but not cars that were expected to fight at the front of the grid with, with, with Ultratech and with, with RJN. Um, how did you how did you find those years in, in British GT and GT4? Well, I really enjoyed it. You know, for after coming from Le Mans, um, I had the opportunity to you know, to come back to England. Um, I, had a, I had a free phone, phone call from a, um, a businessman who approached me and he had this long-term vision um, of wanting to go from British GT all the way to Le Mans. So I really bought into that. You know, I was excited with the opportunity of working with a with a real amateur and really molding him into, um, you know, a, a strong driver. So for me, it was it was a great opportunity and more of a, a passion project. Uh, again, you know, I didn't get to choose the cars, but I was just excited to you know to be back in England and, and be racing on these iconic tracks. So then, after of course, you 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 fell in with a, a TV farmer and uh, apparently pretty good dancer. Uh, and now you're driving with, with with Kelvin Fletcher. Obviously, at the moment, the the peak of that is the Pro Am Championship last year in the Aston Martin. How's working with Kelvin been? It's been mega. You know what? People, I know this is a bit of a cliche thing to say, but you know, I, I, I truly believe that you know everything happens for a reason. You know, moving back to England, you know, I was on this journey with uh, with a businessman to go to Le Mans. In the first year of that relationship, I got introduced to to Kelvin. Um, at first, I was brought in as a driver coach when he was in, in touring cars. But then the following year, we needed another amateur driver to join the second car in, in our team. 
and I, I pushed and, and prodded, and, you know, and convinced Calvin as much as I could to come to British GT because I, I truly believed in him. You know, he was getting a lot of slack in, in touring cars, but a lot of fans don't realise, A, how difficult that series is, B, how little experience he had, but C, most importantly, how talented he truly was. You know, I got to see him at Silverstone in the middle of the year, looking at his data, and from what I was told, I was expecting to see, like, a raw amateur who didn't have a clue what he was doing, but actually, all the technique was there. You know, he, he had all the skill to be a good driver. What he didn't have was the experience and the knowledge to, to rein in that talent and to get the, the detail out of himself and the car to be quicker. So, for me, the opportunity to work with him has been, you know, a blessing, and, it, and it's come about from the opportunities that I've had, you know, to come back to England and meeting the right people at the right time. And, you know, I, I just feel very, very lucky you know, to have met him, and now we're on this journey together. Right, and of course, you got two years in in the Nissan with him, and then you moved into the, to the Aston Martin and took the title. Uh, now you've moved on to onto the GT3 and and the Bentley. And what I find quite interesting about this move is that obviously the the guys that won the year before uh, Scott and Nick have also moved into GT3 with a with a Bentley. Um, obviously, with the team Parker racing, are you looking forward to sort of facing off against your rivals in identical machinery now? I am, yeah. I think it's going to be, a, you know, hopefully, if we do go racing anytime soon. But whenever we do go racing, um, you know, I, I can't wait for the challenge. You know, of course, Scott's a very, very talented driver. He's probably, in my opinion, he's probably the most underrated driver that I've come across. You know, I raced against some really world class drivers, and I don't think Scott gets the credit that he deserves. Um, having said that, he's just another guy I've got to beat. So uh, I don't want to put him on too much of a pedestal. You know, there's going to be one of 14 or 15 GT3 drivers out there that I've got to beat. So uh, you know, bring it on. What are the, the, the goals for, for this year in, in GT3? Is it sort of just get familiar with the car and, and preparing? Is it a multi-year program or is it going for the title from the off? You know, I, I think... I don't want this to come across as like arrogant, but I think you, you really have to have the mindset to, to win. You know, I think you can't set yourself any 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 targets, you know, say top five, top ten, you know, because otherwise then you set yourself up for failure. Um, in my opinion, I think I've got one of the best amateurs in the business and, you know, a, a great team with JRM behind me. And ultimately, it's, you know, it's, it's, I've got to put the pressure on myself to, to raise my level up to the Johnny Adams and the Scott Melvins and those guys and bring my A-game this year, and there's, there's no reason why we can't compete. But, of course, we've got to you know, to give give our all, give our maximum effort, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll be there at the end of the year. How much time have you actually had in the car? Uh, of course, not only has racing been been kiboshed by coronavirus, all the testing programmes have been thrown into disarray as well. Did you did you get much seat time in the Bentley before, or sort of before media day, between media day and the, and the plug being pulled? No, not at all, no. So we went to media day, and we had... Um, like a handful of laps before we had a little um, technical issue. We we did have two days planned before the first race, but then of course they got uh, you know they got canned. So um, and hopefully we will get to go testing again. But then if we don't go testing, then I'm not too worried. You know, the last two years with the GT4, we we didn't we didn't do any testing at all. So we went straight into the season cold. Um, you know, just got to do the best we can, and and hopefully uh, we'll be prepared. Fantastic. We're going to talk about esports in a little bit because you've been doing quite a bit of esports. But between now and then, Andrew, if you want to ask some of the questions that, that the listeners and the members of the fans group have, have submitted. Yep. So the first question is from Michael Rushton. He asked, how different is the GT4 Aston to the GT3 Bentley? And have you had to change your driving style for the Bentley? 
Ooh, okay. Well, of course, apart from stating the obvious between the, the, the three and the four, um, GT3s inherently have a lot more downforce, you know, typically like flat floors, you know, big wings, you know, of course, you've got so much more aerodynamic grip there. But the biggest difference in, say, in driving style, I, I find that the the Aston was, was a very lazy car, um, very understeery. Um, but extremely forgiving car. It was engineered that way to, to try and help the amateurs um, to reach a, a high limit rather than it being like a very pointy car that a pro would be able to, to get to the absolute limit, but it'd be very difficult for an amateur to drive. I think this, the, the Aston was, was very am friendly. And the hardest thing for me last year was was not having to push it so hard. I, I, when I was quick, it was because I was pushing, say, 70 or 80%. I was having to underdrive the car. But when I felt like I was really trying hard and pushing the limits, you just ended up going backwards with, with the Aston. So you really had to train yourself to drive slow to get the most out of the car because that's the way that's the way that car was engineered. If you try and push and push the envelope of the car and drive it in on the nose, late brake, then then you'd end up just plowing on and losing time. So you really had to let that car flow. Whereas the GT3, it's a bit more natural for, for my style you, you know you definitely go in as late as you can on the nose um turn it on a dime and square the corner off and just get on the power as early as you can so but there is a, there is a lot more um you know so there is a lot of difference in, in the driving style but it's just some it's, it's more like small technique changes but nothing major what's the sound difference like between the two? Oh, it's mega to be fair they were they were both great sounding cars but i, I do like the sound of the bentley though it's it's definitely one of my favorites Next question we have is from Paul Levitt. With the season looking like it may run on late into the year, and thus the daylight hours would be much shorter, would you likely have the opportunity to race into the hours of darkness? If you asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said yes. But now I'm in my 30s. I started going a little bit. I, I'm not so sure. But as long as I eat my carrots, I'll be fine. But for me personally, I don't think there's anything sexier than, than night driving. You know, it's... It really brings out the best of the sport. You know, when you see the glow of the, of the brake discs, um, you know, it's really cool. I, I think it really separates the men from the boys and the younger girls from the women. As a photographer, I can second that. It's all those tracking shots of the photographers I need to come up with, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I do love a bit of night driving. Uh, the next question we have is from Chris Humphreys. Martin, over the last few years, you've had a chance to drive and race many different models of GT cars. How much difference development have you seen and are they getting easier for your um, co-drivers to learn and master? Ooh, yeah, no, I think there's been a massive difference in the GT4s. You know, going back to 2015 and 16 when I was in the, in the Lotus and even the Nissan, in my opinion, they were true GT4 cars, you know, more like road-going cars, very soft, flowing, you know, floating around, whereas the, the modern-day GT4, you know, the McLaren and the Justin and so on, you know, they are pretty much dumbed down GT3 cars. You know, they're carbon fiber shells, very rigid, and they drive like a GT3 car. So I, I think overall they are they are getting a lot easier to drive. And even the difference in the, in the lap times is, is, is coming down. And one thing I've noticed that driving the GT3s now, it's, it's harder to pass the GT4s than, than what it used to be. So I, I'm not sure that's a good thing. I think we do need to get more separation between the classes because I think when, when you are passing... The slower class it leaves a bit more risk there, you know, because when you when you're going for moves, um, it's more 50-50. Whereas before, when there was a bigger difference in lap times, the overtaking between the classes was more clear cut. 
I suppose having more cars on the circuit makes it even harder as well. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's getting busier, but it it seems that GT3 is making a comeback. You know, you know, the last few years the numbers were going down, but then this year seems to have boomed again. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to you know hopefully get get going. Oh, we're all looking forward for that day to happen. Fingers crossed, it does happen this year. I hope so. I think one thing that this this you know pandemic's really brought home to me is just taking things for you know for granted. You know, not that I, I took things for granted, but really it's given me a chance to focus on what's important in life. You know, of course. Racing was my life, but now I get to, to you know reevaluate things and think about friends, family, being at home with the dogs, and and all the small things that you, that you miss in life. You know, it's before before this was such a rat race between setting up a new team, getting ready for the season, doing online courses for engineering, and you just get you know stuck in this whirlwind of activity, and then you just kind of lose sight of what's what's important out there. So, not that this was a good thing by any means, but I think. It's taking a positive from a negative. It's really given me a chance to focus and and take a big breath and and just you know realize that you've got to enjoy this moment that we have, you know, to do what we love to do. You mentioned setting up a new team. Obviously, you have your own MX5 team. What made you decide to do that? It started out with our title sponsor from Imagine Cruising, the the owner Andy Sun. Um, they really caught the the racing bug last year, and and they. They came to Calvin and I asking, you know, how do they get started in racing? So at first, we, you know, we gave them some advice. But then in the end, we thought, you know, why don't we just start our own team up? And uh, we researched all the grassroots racing and we decided that the MX5 was the way to go. And uh, six months later, here we are with three cars, a truck and on the verge of starting our first season as team owners. So uh, you know, we're really excited about that um, and just, just can't wait you know, to, to finally get going. And one final question from Facebook, which is actually from me. What was your favourite car you have raced? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I'm going to go with the one that brought me the most joy, I reckon. It's probably my favourite car has got to be the Oak Racing Ligier. Um, and for me, because at the time, it was it was by far the class leader. And it just brings back so many good memories. Um, you know, it was a mega car to drive. You know, very rewarding, very forgiving at high speed, and it really gave me the confidence to just chuck a car in fifth gear at 108 miles an hour and, and knew, knew that it was going to stick. You know, it was just such a beautiful car to drive. Sounds amazing. Um, oh, there's one final question, actually. It's from some driver called Martin Plowman. When you're getting <laughs> your haircut. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, um, that's why I'm really thankful that this is only an audio call today and not a Skype call. <laughs> You're not going not go to get, get the missus to get the um, lawnmower out yet? No, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not doing the COVID cut yet. I, uh, I'm i going to let it grow out. I'm just going to see how badly it gets. Uh, worst case scenario, I'll just be out wearing a hat if I go out in public. But I, I don't know, I can't bring myself to do do the uh, the number one all over just yet. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get hippie Martin when we get back, get, um, get going again. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's going to be like shoulder, shoulder height by the time you see me. <laughs> Grow a mullet. Yes, that's just a thought. We could bring bring mullet back in fashion. Oh dear God, no! <laughs> oh, you can, I can't. <laughs> that's the one benefit of being bald, I guess, in this pandemic is that you don't have to worry about your hair. But finally, I've got an advantage for having no hardly no hair. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's one of the benefits of the racing that we are doing at the moment, where having more hair on your head isn't a weight penalty. Going into the into the esports area, 
Uh, of course, I see that you're you're getting involved in in the spread of esports around around the world. You've done the SRO charity event and you did the race event yesterday. How are you getting on with the esports thing? Then is it is it something that you've done before? Are you used to it, or is it something that's completely new to you? Honestly, it's it's really hard. Uh, you know, I've been a casual eye racer on and off for the last ten years, but I never really took it seriously. You know, I was just there for a bit of fun. You know, I'd log on at five to nine, and the races there start on the hour every hour. And I'd you know log in with no practice, jump into a MX5 race, crash after two laps, and log off. And that was the extent of my eye racing career. But you know, now we've got the time to do it. You know, and I, I do want to take it seriously now. You know, it seems to be that there's a, there's a market out there for for e races and. But the charity race that I did for SRO, um, Bentley themselves, you know, the, the factory were, were getting involved. I got, we had the marketing manager for Bentley and the two lead engineers for Bentley Motorsport were all on the WhatsApp group and were sharing setup and data and, and tips on how to be quicker. So I thought, geez, this is getting serious. So I thought, you know, I better take it, you know, take it seriously myself. But um, no, it's fun. You know, it's it gives you a chance to, to race against other pros out there, but also... You know, the average guy in the street who's got a sim, you know, you can go out there and practice and, and race against real drivers as well. So it's it's good, fun to get out there and just to, to meet people and it helps to keep you sharp as well. Of course, the Online Racing Association announced their 2020 British GT Esports Championship um, in the past week or so. Is that something that you're, you're considering joining in with? Honestly, I don't think I'm anywhere near good enough. Uh, if anything, the last few sim races have taught me is that racing against pro drivers is one thing because we're all on an even playing field. But racing against these sim drivers, they're on another level. I don't know what it is, whether it's just practice or what, or lack of fear, but they can find an extra second out of nowhere. And I'm watching their onboards, and I've got no idea how they do it. Um, I guess you know, it's just practice makes perfect, but. I think I'll leave the sim races to the uh, to the good ones. There'll be one driver you can beat. It'd be Nick. He's taking part. <laughs> Is he taking part? I, 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 I've got the, the British GT fans show logo on the side of a Lamborghini. Brilliant. So we, we can race for last place then? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. We can, we, we, we can enjoy that. We can enjoy that a bit. Um, obviously, there's quite a lot of diversity in the equipment that's being used. Um, looking at the uh, the racing yesterday, uh, we had everything from uh, was it was it Villeneuve that was yeah, using I, I a Villeneuve's got a controller, hasn't he? Like a, a control yeah. and he's got an Xbox controller hooked to his laptop. And then the the most impressive setup I saw there was was one Mister D Turner, who obviously went into the office because he was in the um, single seater simulator at base performance. I didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I had rig envy with that one. Um, what sort? What sort of gear are you are you running? Are you, have you got something a bit specialist, or are you just bolted the steering wheel to your desk? Uh, I'm somewhere in the middle, so I'm not quite Darren Turner spec, but I, it's, it's something that I've been investing in, or I should say that loosely because the uh, the wife's upstairs, so I better be careful what I say. Um, you know, over the last few years, I've just been slowly chipping away and you know upgrading things when I went up and afford it because. Of course, sim racing, like like real racing, is not cheap. Um, but one thing I did upgrade to was a direct drive wheel, which is pretty much an industrial motor, and you strap a steering wheel to it, and it is rock hard. I mean, you can turn the settings up to about 30 newton meters, which is the equivalent of, say, an Indy car with no power steering. But then, of course, you need a chassis to bolt that onto, and I've, I, I hand-built a, a aluminium profile chassis, 
to, to you know to withstand that force. Mm-hmm. But to kind of give you know, put perspective on that, I did the two hour race every day, and my hands were covered you know covered in blisters. And this is from a from a game online. You know, I'm getting blisters from a online simulator. I did notice uh, quite a few of the drivers that have obviously got the um, the the slightly more expensive rigs have also got their gloves from their racing overalls that they're using to to help protect against that. I'm not that smart though. You know, I think you give me too much credit. Um, so, are you going to be doing any other of the the sim races that are being organised at the moment in terms of the race, or are there any SRO ones that are in the future for you? Yeah, I hope so. There's um, a couple that I'm, I've been invited to. The SRO um, has got a qualifier going on right now, so every man and his dog seems to be trying to qualify for that. Um, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a good go and see if I can qualify for the SRO Championship. But it seems to be like every day, everybody's got a race they, they want you to be part of. So, you know, sim racing has become like a full-time job for me right now. But it, it, it's is it helping to keep you sharp? Is it, are the skills transferable? You know what, I believe so, yeah. I think as long as you treat the sim with the same mindset that you would a real car and not just go out there and crash and bash into everything, then yeah, I think it keeps you mentally sharp, um, you know, making setup changes, you know, I know iRacing or Assetto Corsa, they're two great simulators and a lot of the, the setup stuff you do on there actually translates to real life. And a few times I've actually compared sim data to real life data and the similarities were, were staggering. I mean, you could, cover you know the tracks on on the on the motec data and the braking points would be within a few feet and there's the minimum speeds and everything was was virtually identical all right so i can hire you as a driver coach for my world endurance race at le mans tonight then oh yeah yeah uh, about 50 pound an hour yeah i'll send you the paper <laughs> oh i don't think i can afford that one for a race no, I'm I'll, I'll, do, I'll do it for free <laughs> uh, put a speaker in the car <laughs> right that's fantastic well i thank you very much for your time martin wish you luck for the virtual and the real world championships when they get when they get going again and we'll um hunt you out with whatever the first round of the championship is and, and put a real world microphone in front of you no oh, brilliant i look forward to it and hopefully you guys are staying safe and uh you know i can't wait to see you guys again soon you know it's uh i think one thing that you know you, you miss about not racing is not just being in the car but it's the community you know the the fans and the marshals and working with with a team you know that's one thing that you know that really sticks out that, that you miss yeah it's, it's 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 the one thing i'm happy about being a truck driver in my in my day job is i still get to get out of the house and go and see people yeah it's one thing you take for granted yeah it'd be a, it'd be a very lonely time otherwise amen to that British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen creative and RPS driven media production for motorsport.radio. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. last episode we had a bit of fun and we played two truths and a lie um, so it's time to reveal who was lying about what Gaz, let's go to you first. What did you say and what were you lying about? I said that I had a pet lizard, I had a spare washing machine out in my hallway, and I'd owned a Nissan Micra. And I lied about the Nissan Micra. I would rather walk than own a Nissan Micra. Thank God you lied about the Nissan Micra. My thoughts entirely. So, Andrew, what did you say and what was your lie? I said my first four cars were Vauxhall Courses. I have a large car collection which costs far too much money. 
and I played the back end of a camel in a school production at my primary school. I either didn't understand the rules or I couldn't make something up. I All them three are truths. I go with un- didn't understand the rules, I think. Under pressure is what it was. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they're not the most complicated set of rules. I'm not, I'm not a complicated person. Nick? I said that I once sold Bob Monkhouse a Big Mac, and that is true. I also said that I play the clarinet. That is slightly misspelled. I play the cornet, not the clarinet. I don't do woodwind, I'm afraid. And I can't remember what the other thing I said was, but by virtue of the fact that I did understand the rules, they are quite simple. The one that I can't remember must have been true as well. Clarinet. You're supposed to say... I played Snow White and 47 Dwarfs, yeah. Oh, yeah. And as for me, (laughs) I do play Woodwind, um, but that was not one of my options. Again, like Nick, I can remember two out of my three. Uh, So I definitely said that I have sung on stage in front of lots of people. I also said that... Wasn't it sung on stage in Germany? Yes, well remembered, which is true. Um, I've actually sung in a few countries, but I was thinking specifically about an arena in Bochum. I also said that my favourite colour is blue. Which is a lie. My favourite colour is actually forest green. And can anyone else remember what my third one was? You haven't passed your driving test. That's also true. And I still haven't passed my driving test because it's been delayed due to pandemic things. But I do have a new date through. This is Motorsport Radio. So as we don't have any live action racing to comment on at the moment, we have decided that we were going to take a look at arguably the most exciting race of last season at Spa. To start with, Nick's going to give us a rundown of practice and qualifying, and then we'll get stuck into our race report. British GT race weekends, we have a number of sessions before the race actually gets underway. In free practice one at the circuit of Spa-Francorchamps, um, it was Nicky Team and Tom Canning who took the, the top spots in GT3 and GT4 respectively. That is TF Sport on top in both. There was a bit of a battle going on. Ram Racing came to the fore at first and then mark farmer obviously did his time handed over to nikki team and as everybody that follows gt racing knows when you bolt in a nikki team your car automatically goes faster um so that went up to the top of the time timing screens as we we, we carried on through the through the session other cars sort of came to the floor phil Keane took second place in the lamborghini for barwell motorsport and then fourth place went to Johnny Adam in the second TF Sport car. GT4, and say Tom Canning set the best time in the number 97. Scott Malvin was initially leading the way in the Mercedes, the, the Team Parker Rakers and Mercedes he shares with Nick Jones. As the session moves on, time starts to heat up, come the close, TF Sport was at the top. And then we had the second practice session. This time it was, again, Nicky Team on top. For the, for the number two Aston Martin V8 Vantage AMR GT3. But there was there was a bit of a battle this time because JRM, the Bentley Continental of former champions Rick Parfit Jr. and Seb Morris, they they, they decided to, to put in a bit of a fight for it um, at the top spot. In GT4, there was also a bit of a, a bit of a battle going on. Again, Tom Canning and Ash Hans car were, were, was involved in it. But the the number 20 PMW Motorsport, Balfe Motorsport run, McLaren came to the, the, the top spot in the second free practice session. 
Now, in qualifying, of course, for, for some reason, I don't understand why, um, the SRO and British GT decided to run the GT3 cars first. So GT3 cars went out and it was a wet um, at first becoming drying session. Um, and it turned up a bit of a, a bit of an upset um, because you look down the, the results from the GT3 qualifying sessions and we get down to fourth before we get to Ram Racing, who you might expect to be on the front, uh, at the front fifth for Barwell Motorsport. It was Optimum Motorsport, Ollie Wilkinson and Bradley Ellis that took pole position. It was quite a special one because the number 96 Aston Martin was a silver cup entry um, and they outpaced all the, the, the Pro-Am cars in the, in the GT3 qualifying session. The outside of the front row was secured by Michael Igo and Dennis Lind in the WPI Motorsport Lamborghini as well. So it was a bit of a strange look to the grid. Um, the first TF Sport car, for example, Graham Davidson and Johnny Adam, they were down in 10th. The best of the Bentleys was Team Parker Racing, Ryan Ratcliffe and Glyn Geddy. They placed third. So all the cars you expect to see up towards the front just weren't up towards the front, really. So a bit of a surprising one there. The the GT4 qualifying session, it was, again, a different name at, at the top of the standings because Jacob uh, Mathiasen and Mark Kimber took the top spot and they took the top spot by quite a margin. It was um, just over two seconds on the aggregated times uh, that the Century Motorsport BMW took the top spot. And that was from Patrick Kibble and Josh Price in the other TF Sport Aston Martin. The Multimatic Mustang, Seb Prio, Scott Maxwell, they, they were always there or thereabouts throughout last year. And it was again in qualifying, they took third. But again, other names that you'd expect to be further up the order. The number 20 car, which topped the second practice session, only managed to get 18th place on the grid in, in, in qualifying. HHC Motorsport, their best performance was 11th. So the conditions, a bit more trouble. It was Matheson and Kimber, they, they took the gamble and they went out on slicks quite early and it paid off quite handsomely for them. So looking at the race itself then, we had a bit of chaos on the opening lap, um, but we did have some really good stuff happening as well. Um, I mean, my notes on there, um, I've drawn particular attention to Davidson in the number 47 TF Sport. He had a great start, moving up six places into fourth position, uh, which unfortunately seemed to be a little bit overshadowed by the chaos that kind of erupted around them. Um, I think probably starting off with Barwell's number 72 Lamborghini which seemed to have some sort of problem. What did we think of that? Barwell Motorsport had the worst first lap. In fact, they had the worst first couple of corners. Adam Ballon managed to pick up a stop and go for, for something, and I don't think anybody apart from the stewards know why. The Adam Ballon um, incident, because uh, they were slow off the line, and they still had um, mechanics operating on the car before the cars left the grid. Oh, so the stop and go was was procedural rather than... Yeah, car mechanics touching the car a certain time before the car leaves the grid. Yeah, when I think it, it said leave. on the commentary it was within yeah. three minutes of yeah, the race starting. Minutes, yeah. yeah, okay, that, 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 that makes sense. I uh, obviously missed that first time through. So it, 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 it wasn't a great start from the second row back, really. Like we say, Sam DeHaan ended up pointing the wrong way at the source. Rick Parfitt actually got a, a, a 10 second stop go penalty for causing an incident for that one. It does look like there was some sort of contact or hitting the curb, and it did leave Sam DeHaan way back down. I think it had said to go over 46 seconds at one point. It took a long time for, for Sam to work his way back through the GT4 cars as well, didn't it? Yeah. 
shame, really, because Sam's a really talented driver. Uh, of course, the other um, incidents that, that happened on the first lap, uh, the the WPI Lamborghini faded pretty much straight away. I mean, Ollie Wilkinson nailed the start. He, he The lights changed and he shot off like the proverbial rubber's dog and, and wasn't really headed at all. Um, WPI dropped back with the, with Michael Agar at the wheel, but that was to be expected. He was surrounded by silver drivers, and he was a man. The other person having a good having a good stint in that in that first half of the race was um, Sean Balfe, of course. In 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 that in that McLaren, he was, he was storming along. He was. He was. He, I don't think I don't think it stopped. I think that that McLaren's progress just didn't stop for the whole race. Really, yeah, that was an absolutely fantastic run. We're, we are yeah. kind of at risk here of, of having to rebrand the Balfe Motorsport McLaren fans show here because we, <laughs> we've, we, we, we've always had good things to say about, about Sean and, and, and Rob, but, but you are right. That car really did shoot forwards. I mean, it, it qualified 11 and by the end of the, uh, by the end of the first lap, it was, it was knocking on towards podium positions. So that, that, that was quite in advance, even with kerfuffle happening, happening around. And then the next thing that, um, in my notes, that seemed to happen uh, was Mark Farmer in the number two car had some contact with Richard Neary's number eight Abbey Racing Mercedes, causing Farmer to have a bit of a spin. Yeah, this was, I don't know whether it was a racing incident or, or Mark Farmer stepping in where Angels fear to tread, really. It was the typical nose in at the source, wasn't it? And two cars coming into one and, and two into one don't don't work. It's a shame, really, because the uh, the the team Abba Mercedes was was doing pretty well. Mark Farmer was actually running one of his better races of the year at that point. But um, it's to me, it's just a racing incident. I think. Yeah, he tried a similar move. It was actually at the uh, chicane at the end of the Kenwood Straight. Um, oh, yeah, whereby a few laps earlier he he'd taken uh, two places in a similar move, and he tried to do it again. And I don't, I, I just don't think. Neary saw him. I really don't, and, he, and it just sent him just sent Farmer spinning off into the off onto the the runoff. And you know, it's it's it, 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 it. I think it was genuine a genuine race against them that one, whereby someone tried to move that they did earlier. The, the guy he tried to do it against just didn't see him. About thirty five minutes in, number seventy two. Um, very problematic race really after having issues at the start and then getting the penalty, which we've already discussed. Um, Ballon seems to lose control on the exit for Blanchemont, hitting the wall, and that's the end of his race. Yeah, destroyed the radiator, if I remember rightly. Yeah, even just that little kiss on the wall, just yeah, I mean, just completely knocked the car out. Yeah, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't even that great damage. It didn't look like there was much damage on the car at all. A bit of cracked carbon fibre at the front, but it just goes to show how tightly packaged these cars are in that a little bit of damage to the bodywork can do a lot of damage to the oily bits. What I will say um, from, I mean, we talked about eSports earlier. Um, one of the cars that I'm assessing for, for the British GT eSports Championship is a Lamborghini. And the weight balance isn't great on, on the Lamborghini. Um, there's not a lot of weight forward on them. So if he had a lift at Blanchiment, it caused the weight to shift forward. That's a lot of weight coming forward, and you can very easily rotate a car in those situations. So I think it was just a confidence lift, which turned into a um, a, a, a bit of a major moment. And uh, to be honest, he's, he's quite lucky it went to the inside rather than the outside. Yeah. Because if you go to the outside at Blanchiment, you are having a major accident, and there's there's not a lot you can do about it. 
with the with the way the car spun as well, I think he was actually quite unlucky to even touch the wall. He spun he spun twice, and then he only had that slight kiss on the wall, and uh, he, I think he could have got away with that quite cleanly. Ballon said on the um, coverage interview that he did uh, with the GT uh, reporting guy um, that he he think he went through the corner and didn't take the lock off quick enough, which then caused the car to spin. He said he was lucky not to monstrously destroy the car, but he was also as he as he was told, don't swear. And he then swore twice. Um, he then said, in his um, defence, yeah. it wasn't bad words. No, no, I no. They would be harder, they? Not the wor- not the worst words in the world. But um, well, yes, he was he was urinated off with himself, wasn't he? Yes, that's basically what he said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he said he could have been a lot worse. Obviously, he was, I think he's just annoyed the fact that after getting tipped off at the front uh, on the first lap, then obviously then just trying to make his way back up and kept just. It was, he said it was his own mistake. That's the thing, and we, we saw this at Donington Park at the, uh, at the end of the year as well, in the, a minor incident for Adam, uh, which Adam actually survives quite well, can then lead to complications further in the race. I mean, that little contact at Donington Park with the KTM, the car looked fine until you put Phil Keane in it, at which point he literally drove the wheels off it, because there was a little bit of damage that built up. Blanchiment, there's a lot of stresses going through the corner of the car that got hit, so... It could have been a little bit there. Something went wrong at the back of the car, which caused him to go. I think I think Adam was possibly putting a bit more blame on himself than he needed to for that incident. The other thing of note going towards the pit window, number 33, the GCAT racing Porsche 911 GT3R. Uh, that came off a bit worse for wear as well. Unfortunately, got um, Graham Davison was trying to over to, uh, over to lap him because the GCAT Porsche also had a stop-go penalty for accidentally hitting... Um, the Ram Mercedes, um, so he was further back than he should have been. And as Graham was coming through, just I think there's a bit of a mix-up, and they contacted the Porsche, and up going backwards through the gravel and damaged the rear of the car. Yeah, they parked it after that one, didn't they? Just didn't bother to. Uh... They kept going for. They kept going. They brought it back out, fixed it, kept going for a little while, then they eventually gave um, gave up towards the end. Yeah, it kind of seemed to go in and and come back out and then disappear. Um, but there were definitely kind of bits sticking up where they shouldn't have been at one point. Oh yeah, that was from when they, um, that's when they hit, I think they hit the back of the Ram Mercedes, uh, Vian Logge at that point, and it had part of Ian's diffuser stuck in the front of the car at that one. And I think they got rid of it by running it down the pit wall on the, on the way yeah. down to, uh, yeah, on the way down to Rouge. That, that, that was a proper <laughs> Gordon Shedden moment, that was it. it was, I was for, for a minute there, and again, I've been uncomplimentary about this effort before. But for a minute there, I was actually, hang on, we've got real racers in this car. And then it went back to, as I said in season review, um, season preview in episode one, they turned up throughout the race and are barely keeping ahead of the GT4 leaders. It it, it made it onto the TV stream, but it made it onto the TV stream for the wrong reasons. Yeah. We have to to defend them a bit because they are both AM drivers. They're not not like uh, where all the others are pro-AM or silver-silver. They are AM-AM, so they are in a class of their own. They are an AM-AM effort, you are correct, which means that they should at least be a match for the AM drivers in the other cars. And then with the slower driver start, so you have got the slower yeah. AM in. Um, unfortunately, yeah. I think it's Jennings is the slower driver of the two. Mm. Um, he is slower than Catlin, so... I, I love that they're here. I love they've bought that yeah. particular car. I'm, I'm hoping this year... That they've got a bit more confidence because there were signs of good things throughout last year and there are signs of good things in the Spa race. But unfortunately, it was overshadowed by a lack of pace. I think some of that's got to come from consistent practice, though, because mm. if you're an amateur, you've got other things that you're doing. You know, you're running your business, you're 
you're earning the money to be able to pay to race. Um, whereas a lot of the other drivers will have kind of more time to spend in practice in testing. And I think that's important to remember as well. Exactly. Oh, I, I, I look forward to seeing better things in 2020. Oh yeah, I definitely. I, I mean, I, as I said, I'd, love, I'd love to see at least, if not that car, one of those cars fighting for the fighting for a uh, podium position. Mm-hmm. So moving into the pit window and driver changes, uh, we've got Wilkinson and Ratcliffe having had no real challenge. The battle's been further down. But the interesting thing coming into the window is both Davidson and Balfe had got success penalties to serve which just essentially gave them both a bit more of a lead. Into the second half, the next thing I've got a note on my scribblings from the race, number 47, now being driven by Johnny Adams, getting a stop-go penalty for Davidson's earlier error, which kind of opened things out a little bit. Yeah, the quality of the of the field at the front of British GT means that you've, you've got to execute flawlessly. Uh, unfortunately, that little error meant Johnny Adams had to, to take a little run down pit lane. And when you add the Spa pit lane, it's a slow pit entry, a fairly long pit lane, and a slow pit out. So it's a long time trundling down pit lane. It's it's well over 30 seconds, plus stop and go. It, you, you automatically put yourself at least half a minute off the front of the field. And it, it kind of kiboshed their race. But it did then free up, like you say, the number 22, the, the McLaren, and the number 7 of, of, of Glingetti and the Bentley. It freed them up for what? became the moment of the decade pretty much so yeah rob bell was going just after the piss ops going two seconds out quicker than anybody else on the track catching up with um Lingetti and um yeah ollie uh, ollie wilkinson and bradley ellis yeah uh, it, it, it's hard to remember who's the leader because we barely saw them did we no they were oh. hardly on the coverage mm-hmm. yeah i think that that led up to the uh, moment of the race that one didn't didn't, didn't it that three wide yeah. throw rouge yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've got Rob Bell and Gringetti catching up together, but also you've got Callum McLeod's run racing. Yeah. yeah. So, kind so, of closing so, in on them as they're Callum, going Callum had it. come from a long way back as well. He was at, um, mm. he was at least man. five to ten seconds further back from them for about, mm. with about 15 to 20 minutes to go, and he caught, all caught them up. Uh, Rob Bell did get slowed down by Glynn. Glynn's, I think, out of him and Ratcliffe was a slightly, slightly slower of the drivers, and then Rob Bell was just catching in, and then, then McLeod turned up as well. Yeah, so so let's talk about that moment. That was just absolutely the moment. pure brilliance. The moment of the season, I think it actually became, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, my, my thoughts through that was, they're not. They're not. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it. I was watching it live because unfortunately I couldn't make it to Spa last year, and I was Facebook watching it live on the um, GT fan page, and uh, I think I might have swore a few times in the text. They're going, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, what what have we just seen? I mean, people were in raptures when, was it, Mark Webber and Fernando Alonso did it a few years ago in Formula 1. Yeah, but Webber got, Webber got his move done before he went up turn right. The the other thing to remember is a Formula 1 car back then was 1.8 metres wide. A GT3 car is 2.4 metres wide, and we had three of them wide through there. Mm-hmm. It's like... What are they playing at? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, they they all made it through. I mean, over here, the move wouldn't have stood because track limits. I mean, if that was Jonathan Palmer's circuit, there'd have been fines for cutting the grass handed out <laughs> handed out everywhere. But they were they were running FIA track limits that weekend as well, which did get me. I've got that in my notes actually. There's track limits because yeah. a few of them were getting penalties for that. Yeah, I mean, mick with it completely. One of the cars was all four wheels off. 
into Eau Rouge, and another one was all four wheels off out of Eau Rouge. Mm. But track limits at Eau Rouge are a bit of a Eau Rouge and Radial. They're, they're, they're a bit of a, a fluid thing, aren't they? So, but it was and the benefit of doubt was given on this one, I think. Yeah, but it, it it was just astonishing. It was, and it's made it into all the YouTube videos of most amazing moments in motorsport and you yeah. see videos of Porsches on their tail end and Formula One cars flying through the, and then you see this and it's all of this bad stuff that happens in motorsport and then this is how you drive a car, chaps. I think um, we, also need to, we need to set it up because for people who have not seen it, if mm-hmm. it might be people that have not seen it, the 22 and 7 were in the front and then the 6 decided to join in and they went three abreast through the first part of Beau Rouge turning right they all sort of just about managed it then end up the six went into corner last came out first yeah and and and, and it had a wobble cars. halfway up radion as well yeah caused me a lot of elation because i had that my number six was actually my secret weapon in the in the uh in the fantasy lead last last year as well so that scored me a lot of points Stop <laughs> rubbing that in, guys. and as if that wasn't enough nail biting action then we ah. had the final corner oh that was that was gutting for for the the car of dorlin and uh Josh Smith. I said Josh Smith as well. That was absolutely good. And that was the little, that little bit of contact on the final corner just led them split, split radiator down the side of their car. They had to retire on the, on, on, the, on the first corner, on the final lap. But then it caused all kinds of mayhem at the final corner for everyone else following them. Yeah, including Rob Bell, who ended up doing a full donut. Yeah. I think Steve McCulley, um, not Steve McCulley, um, Matt George. Matt George actually had the actually had the worst, I think, first spin of it, yeah. It was Matt, then, I think Rob, uh, then Ollie Wilkinson was behind him, had a bit of a wobble, mm. and as he's crossed the line, you can look behind him, and it was just like, oh, flip. <laughs> I mean, the, the minute that accident happened, the minute you saw that there was water leaking from the side of that car, there's not a lot of space in the bus stop anyway. Ah. You knew you knew it was going to be, but it was, it was like watching Formula Drift. The problem is because it's the radiator fluid. It's not just water. It's it's a proper radiator fluid. It's uh, me and Gaz know we've been on circuit with it. It's um it's slippery as I can't think of the right word right now. It's, it's, it's for about small. two for two three laps. You, you, it's like it's, it's worse than ice. Then eventually the ice disappears. Yeah, it's. I mean, the other thing, of course, was Nicky Team's move going up the camel, going up the camel straight to secure fifth. Yes. He, he 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 hung it out there and. And got that 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 job done, but the the final lap action at that final corner, um, you just a lot of people were very lucky there. Yeah, mm. unfortunately, the incident between the um, four and the ninety seven of uh, somebody who's been reporting on incidents, I would it, it was class I would class it as a racing incident, which I think it did get classed as a racing incident. It was just two cars going through the same part of the corner, and it was no one to blame. It was just unfortunate, and it just did lead into. The McLaren having this split radiator. So behind the the runaway Aston Martin, and then the three that survived, Eau Rouge, and then of course the final corner. Uh, the next car that came in was the the number two, the TF Sport car, came in fifth place, and that was thanks to to quite an audacious move from Nicky Team on on the way down the Kemmel Straight, wasn't it? I think again, it's something that was unfortunately overshadowed, and we saw quite a lot of it through the whole of the race, right from the start, where they would be really good things in a race, but unfortunately, there's just been so many monumentally spectacular moments in this one that they've kind of taken second seat almost to bigger things. Um, and I think it's important that you know we do see those for the genius moves that they are. Yeah, there is only a certain amount of time in the highlights package, and they, 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 they can't include everything, but. 
there were some some pretty good overtakes and the number the number two car. I don't know whether they ran it a bit skinnier, uh, but a bit less aero on it, so it was a little bit slippier down the Kemmel Strait, perhaps. Um, but it, it appeared to be pretty strong out, out of Radion and down to uh, Le Com. So. And going around the outside of Adam, I can't pronounce his last name, sorry. Um, going around the outside, that's definitely a good move. Yep, I'll agree with that one completely. Of course, that then meant that the Team Abba Racing number eight came in sixth place, ahead of... Um, the only surviving Barwell Motorsport Lamborghini. Sam Dehan and Johnny Cocker took the finish in the number 69 car. A bit of a poor reward for a, for a tough weekend for Barwell. Considering it was facing the wrong way after five corners, it, it could have been a lot worse of a result. I was about to say that. that that's, that's, I'd say that was a fairly good recovery. I mean, it would have been nice to see that car, that car higher. Um, as I say, I think Sam's a, a decent peddler. I think, that, I, think, I think that's a fairly decent recovery from, from that spin, which set him sent him all the way down the back of the field. And, of course, the saving grace for Barbell Motorsport with that one was the fact that whilst the 69 only finished 7th, 8th was, was the number 47, the car that was was challenging for the championship. Graham Davidson, Johnny Adam, not a race that they're going to look back on particularly fondly. No, it wasn't their best one, was it? Davidson's mistake at, um, at the chicane. Really, I mean, it just it didn't it didn't display all all of what you'd expect from that from that car. Well, it definitely had an issue after Adam took the penalty for Graham. It was definitely slowing towards the end. and got passed by the teammate car and the other few others behind it. Yeah, you got to you got to wonder what that had done. Or you know, I believe believe it might be a brake issue because um, when team came past him, it was into breaking into the bus stop and he just flew past him. So probably yeah, no, probably that, a braking issue. That's 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 Nicky team. Diving down the end, diving down the inside of someone again, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, as, I, as we're saying about the short highlights, really, if you want to get into it, put Nicky team in your car. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I've, I've been watching some of the uh, Lone Star Le Mans race as well, and, and Nicky, you know, I mean, he, he can, he can, he can dive down some, dive down the inside of some corners. I tell you. Um, of course, rounding out the top ten uh, was the WPI Motorsport Lamborghini. Again, not the result that that team would have been hoping for after Michael Igo started on the second row. And, and Dennis Lind um, that, that then took over. And then the Dominic Paul and Ben Green, the number three Century Motorsport BMW M6, finishing 10th. I think, personally, I think sort of below below eighth. It, it was almost, they were also runs. But again, that was because of everything that was going off at the front of the field. So the, uh, w, the, w, the WPI um, Lambo was involved in a few little scrapes here, there and everywhere, which did slow its progress. A decent run at the, at the beginning of it, but I think it, it, it suffered from the, you know, the, the wet qualifying, dry, dry running of the race. You know, I go just drop back to, may, may I say, more talented drivers. You know. So you you say he, he qualified ahead of where the car should have been, and 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 it just took two hours for it to sort itself out. Yeah, kind of maybe. <laughs> That's a that's a fair comment. I mean, I'm trying trying to trying to be diplomatic to to Michael in after what after after only one season. I'd like to see how he does this year when we get going, and then start making proper assessment of. Of course, we've we've mentioned the number three century car coming in in tenth last to the points paying places. I was quite pleased to see the number nine century motorsport car Jack Mitchell's full season ride joined by J M Lippman for for Spa. I was quite pleased to see that not that far off to the. Uh, the teammate car. I'll say that about a minute off, and the first car a lap down on the on, on the leader. But given the the pick and mix of of co-drivers that had been in the the number nine car over the course of the season, 
I think finishing ahead of JRM and M2 what, what was a fair result for them. JRM did have a lot of issues during the race, mainly with half its penalty. They also had a puncher um, when Morris took over. He dropped a nearly a lap, well, definitely a lap behind. We sort of put pay to them getting a points finish this weekend. The final car that I mentioned there was the number 37, the M2 competition. Aston Martin, the to JMR GT3. Tony Quinn and Darren Turner finished one lap down on the leader. In terms of pace, they're about two seconds off the pace throughout the race, uh, looking at best laps and things like that. But I don't really know much about that effort. It was a brand new car for them to that weekend. They were testing ready for the speed week the week after. Yeah, I was about to say they they were they were basically using this race as a shakedown for the Spa Twenty Four. You know, so you know for them to stay one lap behind the leader, I think is a, a fair go. Yeah, so th- their objective was to get to just get through the race unscathed and, and yeah. damage the car because they didn't the go next week. You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. You can find us on social media at BGTF Show. Or visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Also visit our partners. British GT Fans on Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, it's Fans of British GT. So we had so much brilliant action with the GT3 side of things. We didn't get to see as much of the GT4 as we probably might have done in other races. But looking back, and we did have some strong starts coming through. We also had not so strong starts. So let's talk about that. Yeah, the the, the strongest start was probably Tom and Motorsport. The number four car just um, started fourth on the grid, uh, took the lead pretty much straight away and, and held on to it all the way through to the, to the penultimate lap of the race, really. The, the, the two TF sports have, have always been pretty fast starters and, and were again. And then Multimatic. The, the number 15, Mustang, strong performers again in the, in the early part of the race. What do you think, guys? Definitely a good start by James Dolan in the number four Tolman car, keeping ahead of both TF Sports of Ash Hand doing the first stint and Patrick Kibble, the youngest driver on the grid in the 95 TF Sport Aston. Good, strong start. Keeping Scott Maxwell in the 15 Mustang, which was GT4 Championship leader going into this round, keeping it behind him was a good start. Yeah, that Mustang's always been pretty strong uh, away from the lights as, uh, uh, as well and again it was today but really the the, the mclaren that car was was, was pretty determined i think both tolmans did really well on this because i mean the number five battled its way up from seventh by the time we got through to the pit window um yeah, so it kind uh, of worked it all prob- the way up it might got messed up by the um the wet dry qualifying because obviously the um 42 century bmw which did start on the gt4 pole after um, timing itself on dry tyres in the first wet session of qualifying. So I'll see the TF Sport and the, the two Tolman cars, they're normally the ones up front, so they have to parge their way through to get to the front again. Yeah, the the qualifying session, as, I, as we discussed with GT3 as well, the qualifying session in both classes, it, it, it set the stage for a fairly interesting first lap anyway. Throw in the fact that it's Spa, where you're never going to get a clean first lap, and, and quite frankly, it's amazing that any cars came out of a uh, came out of a rouge intact. Really, yeah, they, they all managed to keep it nice and clean. I'm just rewatching the start again now, and and yeah, they they, they every, every, there's a few cars going quite wide around the first corner, but they all managed to keep it nice and clean. And uh, it, man, there were there were some nice there were some nice uh, overtakes done off the line. I think the other thing in the first half of note was the number fifty seven HHC Motorsport. 
which unfortunately ended up retiring after stopping on track with some sort of mechanical issue. Did manage to limp into the pits from what I could see. Dean McDonald made use of the uh, circuit elevation to keep that car going after it finally did stop just at the top end of the circuit and used the downhill to make it pretty much all the way to the bottom bottom straight before it finally stopped on the circuit. He did get it going again, but as, as Sarah just said, he got back to the pits and it never seemed to reappear. Does anybody actually know what happened to it in terms of why it didn't come back out? No, I think I think I think I think remember they just took it back into the pits and and that only back wheeled it back into the pit garage and I don't remember any kind of detail being given for that car's no, it was, like, it effective was, retirement. It was just kind of surmised that potentially it was an electrical issue, which if that's the case, obviously they can be finicky and it might be that they'd never actually worked out exactly what was wrong. On T's race report, it just says that he set the fastest race lap, then just retired soon after. I also believe there was another retirement on the first lap, and that was the, ex- the crossbow of uh, of track focused, which um, I think we just found out was had got a drive shaft failure as well. That was I think it didn't even get it to the end of the Camel Straight. See, for me, the um, the race at Spa, it it showed that there are chinks in the McLaren armor. The, the 57 obviously didn't make it to the pit stops, really. The 58 only just made it, and we're talking by a matter of metres, only just made it to the end of the race. Now, that's both HHC cars. Obviously, the, the two Tolman cars ran the two hours pretty much uh, pretty much okay. Um, but the, the, the HHC cars showed that, that there is some mechanical worries, in my opinion. I think the 58 probably stopped just after the line because he was probably out of fuel. Yeah, that would have been my guess as well. See, again, we don't, we don't actually know what happened to it. We just know that it stopped. So, it, yeah, fuel, fuel makes sense. Running the cars at, uh, over 60% of full throttle for the circuit length, obviously, for a full two-hour race, is probably pushing, I think, all the cars, their maximum fuel capacity. So, 58 probably just, HSE was just probably running it the closest. Yeah, do we do we know when they when they stopped? Did they stop right at the start of the window? Or the majority of the cars did stop within the first lap or two of the pit window being opened. So yeah, they, they they may have just I'd say misjudge it on fuel, but perfectly judge it on fuel. Was it was it Sir Sterling Moss that used to say? Or no, it was um, I can't remember who it was. But it was one of the famous Formula One drivers that said that a car that a car that breaks down after the thirty five laps it's supposed to do sort of thing is is a perfectly engineered car. I'll dig out that quote for the next episode. So the second half of the race GT4-wise, there seemed to be a lot of swapping between the two TF Sports, 95 and number 97. For me, it was it was more between, it was the two TF Sports versus the two Tolman McLaren, because they were, the four of them were running in company. It was McLaren, Aston, Aston, McLaren for quite a while. So it's, it's it's really hard to say because the coverage focused on, on, on the GT3 race quite quite heavily. None of us were actually at Spa for that race. So we, we can only go off what the coverage told us. Yeah, and it's, it's only really towards the very end that we, we really saw anything. And it's really when kind of Cannon started to challenge for the lead that we did see anything really. And even that was kind of a retrospective replay just because it had caused issues for the GT3 side. Yeah, it's 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 the problem of racing in the in in the lower class, and uh, and you see it in in all forms of multi class racing. You, you see it at Le Mans. There's a lot more coverage of P1 than there is of GTM, which is a shame because normally where the the 
other class, well, I'd say lower class, is probably you probably get the better racing. Also, the fact with GT4 last year, there was more cars in that. Yeah, I worry for GT4 this year, actually, in terms of the amount of screen time they're going to get because they're now the smaller class as well. There's still some, there's still some talent in GT4. I mean, they've got those, got those guys, from the Tolman guys, who are. Um, they, they're still going to. I think, I think they'll still get some TV present. Yep. So let's talk about that final bit with the challenge for the lead, because that, as we know, led to the spillage on the final corner. At least two different opinions on this one. And guess what? I'm in the minority. I'm going to state my case first, and then the chaps can knock it down. I think. Does that mean I get to adjudicate? Yes. I think Tom Canning made a legitimate attempt at the lead. I think that given his location in the right-hand part of the bus stop, the left-hand part of the bus stop was his to take. And I think the McLaren, was it James Dorlin? Yes. No, Josh Smith at this point. Josh Smith. Josh Smith, my apologies. Um, I think Josh Smith turned in on the Aston Martin and basically everything that happened to him thereafter was his own fault. Um, if I was in the driver's seat of the McLaren, one, it would have been overtaken a long time ago because of the excess of ballast. Um, but if I was driving that McLaren, I'd have let the Aston Martin go. The Aston Martin get through at the bus stop and then stayed in his, in his wheel tracks for Eau Rouge and dragged past him down the Cannon Strait and taken it back again. That would have been what I'd have tried to do rather than take the risk of closing the door, that risk not paying off, and then potentially ruining 39 cars race because they all had problems as a result of that. I mean, I think it is just really unfortunate the way that it played out. I actually agree with you, Nick, that I think it was a a fair shout at a challenge. So I think probably the right thing for him to do is just unfortunate that it did puncture the radiator and cause the, the leak. I, I class it as a 50-50 racing incident. It was Josh put his car in a certain spot to try and hold a position. Tom Canning in the 97 was trying to make a move. Josh could have left space. Tom could have backed out. It's one of those manoeuvres. And as a marshal, and not reported on these sort of incidents before, I would have reported it as a racing incident. Unfortunately, it just happened to contact. It happened to cause, obviously, the radiator split on number four. Yeah, I, I'm going to take pretty much the same opinion as, as Andrew. You know, the, the fact that the radiator split is unfortunate. I don't the pla- where where the uh, radiator sits on the McLaren maybe isn't the best, but that you know, for, in, ter- in terms of you know susceptibility to damage, yeah, that it, to me it was a ra- that was a race against, and that's what happens when two cars go into a corner, you know, challenging for the lead. They they, they, they you're always going to get that slight bit, slight bit side to side. You know, I, I probably, we'll, probably, we'll probably get people saying who actually race themselves coming into us saying, well, I've never, you know, I never put side by side, but, you know, we, we see it all the time. That's what happens. Obviously, Nick said about perhaps Josh should have let Tom Canning pass. My opinion of watching motorsport is probably best to defend a position rather than try and gain it. So there's no way of saying that Josh in the McLaren could have got back past anywhere around the circuit it could have got a gt3 car could come up behind it and got between them something else could have happened rather the circuit so i always think in that sort of position josh defending the position is probably the best thing he could have done to keep ahead better to defend and try and gain mm, yeah, it's, think- yeah it's always about, it's always about trap position you've always got to have that trap position especially especially when you're one lap off to the end of the race i think irrespective though it's got to be heartbreaking to be that close oh yeah he looked gutted on the tv footage <laughs> So the start in the very last lap of the race, and, it, and he's, after after that car led the whole race, 
Yeah. And so how this happened, and they all go peak Tong. I understand what you guys are saying about the track position. I understand about defending rather than attacking. But at the time the McLaren turned left, the Aston Martin had nowhere to go. Um, even if it stomped on the brakes, he was going to hit the rear quarter of the car. Maybe a little bit further back, and maybe the car would have survived just just spun rather than dropped all its coolant. To me, you're better off going deep into the going deep into the corner of sitting position because second with the chance of first is better than parked up at the source and, and overheated and having to pay for a new McLaren engine. You have to bear in mind that the fact that both these drivers are very young as well. Uh, Tom Canning. I know probably age is probably not a good excuse, but is they're both of any couple of years in, within motorsport, they're probably trying to get that win. It's um, race racecraft, race experience might have perhaps led to this as well. That is a very fair point. It's it, it may just be thinking they get away with it. Oh, he'll stop, and then the other person thinking, oh, he won't turn in on me, and you come straight to an accident. We've all well, I say we've all had it. There's some people that have never had a car accident, but I've I, I've definitely had it. Oh, that car's not going. Oh, I'm bugger, he's in the side of me. So it's, yeah, I, I, I can see the logic there. Regardless of whether it was inexperience or over-exuberance, which, which caused the accident, the final result was a bit different than it was the lap before the end. So the winner, of course, eventually was the number 97 TF Sport Aston Martin, uh, Ash Hand and Tom Canning the survivor of the penultimate lap last corner shunt, followed home by the number five, the Tolman Motorsport uh, McLaren 570S of Jordan Collard and Lewis Proctor. In third was Patrick Kibble and Josh Price sharing the number 95 TF Sport Aston Martin with Balfe Motorsports McLaren for Graham Johnson and Michael O'Brien taking fourth place. and They won GT4 Pro-Am. The top three in GT4 were all Silver Cup entries. Fifth place goes to Optimum Motorsport, Patrick Matheson and Mike Robinson. Again, Silver Cup entries, as were Seb Prio and Scott Maxwell in the Ford Mustang for Multimatic Motorsports, which finished next up. Number four actually managed to classify, despite the fact it stopped on the outside of La Source after dropping his radiator fluid all over the place. James Dolin and Josh Smith did get seventh and points for their trouble in the McLaren there, ahead of Steve McCulley and Matthew George. They were in the, the 44 Invictus Games Racing Jaguar, which finished in eighth. Ninth was Team Parker Racing, Scott Malvin and Nick Jones in the Mercedes-AMG GT4. And then final points-paying position went to Beach Dean AMR, the number 11 Aston Martin of Martin Plowman and Kelvin Fletcher. They rounded out the points. So there you go. Those are our highlights from the 2019 British GT Spa-Francorchamps race. Uh, we'd like to apologise for any audio grumbles during that last segment. Parts of it were recorded on the move um, in order to work around people's shifts as they're still key workers, but we hope it didn't interfere with your enjoyment. Thanks for listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, the show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed, reproduced or used in any form without permission. 
For more information or to get in touch, please visit www.bgtfshow.co.uk. Thanks for listening.